If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can use the one that's there in the chair. Page 973 is where we'll be today, Galatians chapter 3. What is it that satisfies God? Maybe to ask that in a... I don't know, it would be a more crass way, but what is it that makes God happy? That's really the, the question that we're wrestling with in the book of Galatians. Uh, that's what Paul is dealing with in this book. What we've seen so far in this series is, uh, so the, the churches in Galatia, the, the region, the Roman province of Galatia, were planted by the Apostle Paul. And then uh, false teachers came in and they proclaimed a different message, a different gospel. And what they sought to do was to discredit Paul, discredit Paul's message uh, by discrediting him. By saying things like he's not an apostle, he's not an official messenger, he doesn't have the right message. We have the right gospel, he does not. And so Paul actually begins the letter with his own experience and his own official calling from Jesus. And as he challenges the teaching of this false, these false teachers, we realize that uh, what it is that they're preaching. Again, what is it that satisfies God? And the message that they're preaching is this. It's not enough to have faith in Jesus Christ alone. You must also obey Jewish customs and laws. In other words, faith is insufficient. Trusting in Christ is insufficient by itself. If you want to be accepted by God, if you want God to be satisfied with you, you must add works. But as we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 21, Paul is very clear. If we seek to live that way, we actually nullify the grace of God. It's not grace plus. We actually nullify God's grace when we seek to live by our own righteousness, our own works. Paul has made his case biographically. He's told his own story. And now from this point on, he will make it theologically. He uses several arguments uh, to try to make his point. And so we're going to pick up in... Chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Another way to say that would be, by believing what you heard. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by or completed by the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by believing what you heard. Just as Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the good news beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. And ask him for his help. Father, as we again talk about your grace uh, and how you save us, how you accept us, would you help us to understand your word, especially as we look at parts of the Old Testament that uh, we're not really familiar with. I pray that you would bring these things before our eyes, that you would help me to make sense of them, and that your word would come with power to our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I want you to imagine that you're going to take a trip to Hawaii. I hear it's lovely. I've never been there. But you're going to take a trip to Hawaii, so you board a plane. And as you cross the Pacific Ocean, the largest ocean on the planet, you decide that you could do this journey better yourself. Uh, And so, by the way, um, I checked with Google, the shortest distance between California and Hawaii by flight is 2,472.9 miles. For frame of reference, Alabama at its widest point is 150 miles. There's a lot of Alabama between Hawaii and California. All right. But you decide that, you know what? I don't know if this plane is, is going to get the job done. I'm going to do this myself. And so you get up from your seat. You thank the, the stewardesses and the pilot for their hard work. Uh, and then you open the door and you jump out. What, what, would, you, what would you rightly call yourself uh, if you did that? Stupid was one word. No, it's good. Dead might be another word. Um, foolish would be a word to use. <laughs> Slow, yeah. Um, Paul, here in this letter, calls the Galatians foolish because, he does it twice, because that's in essence what they are doing. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being completed or perfected by the flesh? They're, in essence, looking at their salvation begun by God, by faith in, what, in God's promise. And they're saying, now, I think I can do this better. And they're turning to their own efforts, to their own work. 
But here's Paul's argument. Here's the point he wants to make, I think. It's this. We continue in the Christian life the same way we begin it. By trusting in Christ. It's what faith is. It's trusting. We'll talk a lot about that. The word faith comes up multiple times in this section. We continue in the Christian life the same way that we began it. By faith. By trusting in Christ. Now that's different from the way that I understood Christianity when I began exploring it in my late teens. Some of you uh, I've told this story to. But, but my understanding of Christianity, of of how to be accepted by God was this. One, pray a prayer. Two, Jesus breaks me even. Right? So, so I pray a prayer, ask for God's help, Jesus will break me even. And then it's up to me from there. It's up to me to keep my nose clean. It's up to me to stay in God's good graces. That's what I understood Christianity to be. Faith plus works equals salvation. But the good news is very different. The good news is that we not only begin by trusting in Christ, we also continue by trusting in Christ, and we will finish by trusting in Christ. We will not reach the new heavens and the new earth any other way than by faith in Christ. Paul uses three proofs to make his point. First, he uses the proof of the Galatians' own experience. Then he talks about Abraham. How did Abraham prove this to be true? And then he talks about the law itself from the Old Testament, how that proves his point. So first, he talks about their own experience. He says, foolish Galatians, verse 1, who has bewitched you? Their, their behavior is so crazy to Paul. That he's like, surely somebody had to cast a spell on you. What in the world are you thinking? He says, it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, now here's the thing. These people were not in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. They were hundreds of miles away. When Paul says that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed before their eyes as crucified, he's using the language of, uh, of, a, of like a public notice, right? If, if, you wanted, if you want someone to see something, right, maybe you put it on a, a billboard or you, you know, I remember in, in college, right, there were bulletin boards in every hall and every classroom, you know, and it, like if you wanted somebody to see something, you put it on a, on a billboard or a bulletin board, right? That's the language that Paul is using here. He's saying that, that Jesus was placarded, was publicly proclaimed or portrayed as crucified before your eyes. He's talking about, not about them actually seeing Jesus. He's talking about his, when he preached Jesus to them. He talks about what they heard. He's talking about his preaching. And what he's saying Right. This this tells us a couple of things about the way that Paul preached. One, it is rational. Right. It it speaks to the mind. It conveys truth, facts about Jesus, particularly that he was crucified. That is a, a fact that Paul preached. But Paul's preaching was more than that. It was also emotional. 
It gripped the heart. Right? Paul didn't give dry lectures in a classroom. He preaches in such a way that, uh, as my, my preaching professor in seminary would say, he turns your ears into eyes. In the way that Paul preaches, the crucifixion of Jesus comes alive to these people. And what do they do? How do they respond? They believe. They hear with faith. Right? Christianity, uh, becoming a Christian, is not just simply accepting a set of facts as true. It's actually receiving and resting upon what God has done for you in Christ. It's not just rational. It's also emotional. And it's volitional. It's your will. You have to rest yourself in Christ. And so what was the result? Paul says twice they received the Spirit. And when he says they received the Spirit, he's talking about the beginning of the Christian life. I'm going to differ with some of my charismatic friends who kind of talk about a, a two-stage Christianity, right? There's, there's the believing, and then there's the, the second blessing, right? Then you receive the Holy Spirit later on as you progress. That's not the way the Bible speaks. The Holy Spirit, this is the way Jesus speaks in John chapter 3, that you have to be born again, right? It's the Holy Spirit who comes in and changes the heart so that you can receive the gospel by faith. So they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, their Christian life begins. And we even see in verse 5 that God works powerfully among them as they believe. And so here's Paul's question to them. He says, this is what I want to know. Did all of that happen by faith, by hearing, or by works? Did you come into Christianity by works, your performance, or by believing what you heard, by faith? And of course, the answer is faith. And so then, that's why Paul says, well, if you began by faith, why are you trying to finish by works? It's as foolish as jumping off a plane in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But your argument is only as good as the proof you bring. And while experience can be powerful, truth needs to be grounded in fact. And so Paul not only brings this issue before them from their own experience, but then he also points them back to Abraham. Now, why Abraham? Well, remember, if you've been with us, that these false teachers are Jewish people, and they are wanting these Gentile believers, Gentiles are not Jewish, they are wanting these Gentile believers to accept Jewish custom in order to be accepted by God. So they're saying things like, well, yes, you have faith in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You need to follow the Jewish food laws. In other words, you need to become Jewish in order for God to accept you. And they were pointing to the Old Testament to make their case. And so actually this is brilliant on Paul's part, right? Because Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. He was the first person that God commanded to be circumcised. 
So if anyone is accepted on the basis of God's, uh, on the, on, based on the obedience to God's commands, surely it would be Abraham. And so what does Paul say? He's like Lee Corso. Not so fast, my friend. He goes back to Abraham's story and he shows that actually Abraham is accepted on the same grounds that everybody else is. Faith, not performance. So uh, look at verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes actually from the Old Testament from Genesis fifteen six. And if you go back to Genesis 15 and read it, uh, it would probably be a story that's, that sounds very strange to you, very unfamiliar to uh, our, our, a modern reader. But here's basically what happens. God makes a promise to Abraham, a man who is in his 90s and has no children of his own. God makes a promise to Abraham that he will give him offspring, descendants that outnumber the stars. That's kind of a bold promise. Right, that, that will require divine intervention. Right? God will have to do something miraculous for a man in his 90s with no children of his own to have offspring that outnumber the stars. That will require a divine work. You might even say that God publicly portrayed that promise to Abraham by making him go outside and looking at the stars and trying to count them. God, God makes his promise very real, not only to Abraham's mind, but also to his heart. And what does it say that Abraham did? He believed God. What is, he, he trusts God to keep his promise. Notice what faith is not. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. Faith is not just kind of a general like, yes, I know God is there, I know he exists, or I know certain things about his character. Abraham didn't just believe in God, he actually believed, he trusted God. He said, all right, you made the promise, I trust that you're going to keep your word, that you will do what you said you're going to do. And what does God do? It says he credits or he counts Abraham's faith as righteousness. We're going to get a little bit deeper in the weeds here. What does it mean that he credited Abraham's faith as righteousness? Well, think, think about what happens when you buy something on credit. The reason you buy something on credit is because you don't have uh, the money, or at least you're not willing to put that money up at that moment, right? You know, so when I, when I buy new tires on my Discover card, I'm not actually buying those tires, you, know, you understand, this is how credit cards work. I'm not actually buying those tires. Discover is buying those tires. That's Discover's money, not mine, right? They are crediting me with the assumption that I will at some point pay them back, right? A credit is something we get that we didn't have before. And so this isn't saying that Abraham is righteous. Is righteous. Abraham doesn't have righteousness. His faith is not his righteousness. What it's saying is that God looks on Abraham's faith and he declares him to be something that he is not. Righteous. He gives him a credit. This is what the Bible calls justification. We've used that word a bunch in this series because it's used a bunch in this letter. 
To be justified is to be accepted by God as righteous. To receive something that you do not have in and of yourself. And then Paul goes on to say that everyone who believes, who trusts, just like Abraham, everyone who does that is actually Abraham's son or daughter. Now this, this would have been a shock to the Jewish false teachers, to the Judaizers, what, they, what they're commonly called. Because they, they were ethnically sons of Abraham, right? They were descendants ethnically of Abraham. And they would have taken stock in their Jewish heritage. But Paul says, you know, the real sons and daughters of Abraham aren't ethnic sons and daughters. They're those who have the same faith as Abraham. They believe like Abraham believed. And then he quotes another promise uh, from Genesis 12, 3, there at the end of chapter 8. And you shall all the nations be blessed. He said that to Abraham. How would God bless the nations? He would do the same thing for the nations, for the Gentiles, that he did for Abraham. He would justify them. He would declare them righteous when they were not. And how does that happen? How do Gentiles, how do we receive that blessing? Is it by circumcision? Is it by works of the law? Is it by performing Jewish rituals? No. Look at verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. So we receive God's promised blessing through faith, not through works. Then Paul makes one more Old Testament argument. This time he goes to the law itself. Now, Let's go back to the plain illustration from earlier. What happens if you're the person who says, I don't need the plane's help to get to Hawaii. I can do it by myself. What is the result of that decision? It's probably death, right? Even if you jumped out of the plane with a parachute, you've still got a long way to go, right? And so Paul says in verse 10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed. Curse is the opposite of acceptance, right? To be cursed is the opposite of justification. To be cursed is to be rejected. Uh, to experience God's curse is to be, is on the opposite of being justified. And Paul says that everyone who tries to rely on the works of the law faces that curse. That if that's the way you want to be accepted by God, right, what, what Paul's really doing is he's saying, okay, there's, there's two ways, and we said this last week, there's two ways to live. You want to approach God by doing everything he says. That's the way you want to achieve life, to reach life. Okay, here's what's going to happen. If you strive for life that way, you will die. It is a dead end. Because no one can reach God that way. Why? Because we don't abide by everything written in the book of the law. I don't do everything that the law says. And sometimes I don't even want to. 
And so the only thing I can experience if I go down that road is God's rejection. If I reject the plane, well, the plane will reject me more or less. Right? If, I say, if I say to God, no, I'm going to do it this way, I'm going to do it my way, then God says, okay, you're under a curse. And the, the bad news is that that is every single one of us. That's every single one of our experience. All of us are under a curse because we do not abide by all God's laws and do them. And you know that to be true. No matter how hard you try, even if you're not a religious person, even, whatever your standard of goodness may be, you know that no, no matter how hard you try, you cannot be good. That something always falls short. And Paul, in fact, says that in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What then is our hope? We hear the good news from verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeems. That means he buys out of slavery. He pays the ransom price so that the ransomed can go free. And the price that he pays is himself. He chooses to take our curse on himself. Which means the quote that I read last week from Joni Erickson Tata would have fit a whole lot better right here. So you'll just have to go back to last week's sermon and listen to it again. Because I don't know that we really fully grasp all that that means for Jesus on the cross to become all of my wickedness, all of my nastiness. We, we talked earlier uh, in our call to repentance about uh, chasing after false gods. Jesus dies for that. He takes my, he, he becomes the spiritual adulterer so that I can get credit for his faithfulness. That's what. The gospel tells us that Jesus becomes a curse for us. Now, how do we respond? Does that, does that curse bearing, does that happen automatically for everyone? Is that, auto, is that credit automatically applied to everyone's account? No. Look at verse 14. He says, so that in Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How do I receive the credit of righteousness? I have to believe. I have to have faith in what Christ has done. It's not just intellectual assent. It has to grip my heart. And I have to, and I have to, to receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. That's what it means to have faith. Is that then something that we do? Is, is faith a work so that I'm saved by my faith in that sense? Let me ask you this. Do you help a plane fly when you sit on it? Nope. In fact, you probably could argue, I mean, I'm no physicist. You probably could argue you're hurting the plane, right, by adding weight to it. Do you, do you help the bridge by standing on it? No. You're just 
resting on the work of the bridge, right? When you sit down on a plane and it flies, you're resting in the work of the plane. That's what faith is. Faith is not a work that we do. It is resting upon Christ and what he has done. We do not receive God's blessings by trying to earn our keep. We receive it by trusting, not just to begin the Christian life, but all the way through to the end. So what does it look like for us to live this way? And that'll be a question for us to kind of apply and tease out in our growth groups. Uh, last week, though, I, I'll, we'll just try to take an, an example. Uh, we'll, we'll use one that nobody in here struggles with, coveting. Nobody has that problem. You don't want what somebody else has. We're all content with what, with, with what we have. So that should be easy, right? Let's say that you covet. You know what? I won't even use you. I'll use me. Let's say that I covet. That I covet what you have. That I, that I covet your higher salary. I wish that I got paid as much as you got paid. I wish that I had the things that come with that and the, the added security and benefits that come from that. And you see what, you see what really is behind coveting there, right? That, that I'm acknowledging that really why we covet what somebody else has is because we think that God has held out on us. And that whatever you have will make my life better. And I need it. How does, how does living by faith in the gospel help me deal with my covetous heart? One, it tells me, first, that I'm a sinner. Right? That, 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 that because I'm a coveter, as Paul says, that is idolatry. That, that there is something that I am worshiping and seeking to get satisfaction from more than God. And so I need to repent. That's the first step of the gospel waltz. And, I, and even as I do that, I want to try to figure out, why am I coveting? Why do I want Fred's salary? Why do I want all his benefits? Right? Why do I think that what he has will make me, will make my life better? I want to get underneath that, and I want to bring that before God. I want to repent. But then the second step of the gospel waltz is to believe. I need to realize that God is good. That he has promised that he will take care of me, whether my salary is a little or a lot. And he has demonstrated that in the person of his son, Jesus. In fact, the gospel tells me that in Jesus, if I believe in Jesus, that I have all of God's riches already. Not necessarily physically, right? This isn't name it and claim it. But I have all of God's best for me already in Christ. So I don't have to look anywhere else for my satisfaction or security or joy. It's there in, it's there in Jesus. And I can rest on that. And then the third step of the gospel waltz is I fight. I ask the Holy Spirit to help me believe, help me to believe the truth I just spoke to myself, but also to give me contentment in what I have. Repent, believe, fight. That's, that's how we live by faith in the gospel. So, what does this mean for us? Where do we go from here? Why does this matter on a Tuesday afternoon? And here it is, both for, both for the Christian and for the non-Christian. You cannot earn your keep. So trust in God. As the, as the old hymn says, cast your deadly doing down.
down at Jesus' feet and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that you would give us the faith to believe your gospel promises. That we do not perfect ourselves by the flesh. In fact, if we try to live by the law, if we try to live by being good, by doing everything right, we will actually find ourselves in a worse condition. And so, would you help us to repent of our deadly doing, to lay it down, and then to rest and stand in you, gloriously complete. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.